For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with comedian Dana Carvey about using characters and impressions to figure out what makes people tick. Find out about a local organization that offers help to victims of domestic abuse. And author Johanna Skibsrud reads from her book, Quartet for the End of Time. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. It was in 1986 that Dana Carvey made a name for himself as one of the hardest-working cast members on Saturday Night Live. His characters included Garth and the Church Lady, and he had memorable impressions including Ross Perot, Paul McCartney, and then-President George Bush Sr. Carvey left SNL in 1993 after eight years and starred in more than a dozen movies, including the two-hit Wayne's Worlds. But he's often chosen to put his family first and stay at home with his wife and two sons rather than live on the road or pursue movie roles. Today he makes a few TV and movie appearances, but he says he most enjoys performing live, returning to his roots as a stand-up comic and giving his sons a chance at the spotlight. Local audiences can experience an evening with Dana Carvey, plus sons Dex and Tom, at the Fox Tucson Theater on Friday. Before I got Saturday Night Live, I did Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas's last movie. These icons from the 60s and 70s, all of a sudden, their very last film, and all of a sudden, I'm the third lead. I'm the sidekick. You know, I was just a stand-up, you know? And I walked up to uh, Burt Lancaster, and I said, this is my first movie. He goes, he said to me, all your first movie. I've done 74 motion pictures. <laughs> and then I walked up to Kirk Douglas, and I say, I play Richie, and he goes, well, you're perfect. That's the best casting I've ever seen. So it was funny. I learned to do Burton and Kirk by doing the movie with them, not by copying uh, Frank Gorshman or Rich Little for people over 50. <laughs> and then after that, you know, I was a huge Star Trek fan. Within a few months of getting Saturday Night Live, in which I had never done sketch comedy, by the way. I learned to do sketch comedy on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Um, all of a sudden I'm in a sketch with William Shatner and I, you know, I'm playing con and that blew my mind doing scenes with some of the older guys in the sports stars, especially got my attention. Um, Robert Mitchum, um, blew my mind. Charlton Heston, um, everyone, you know, has been dead for a thousand years. You, um, you engaged him in a, in a really long and interesting Planet of the Apes satire that night too. Yeah. Good memory. Everything. Oh, I'm an he didn't SNL want to do the church lady, and Lauren Michaels was very, really wanted a church lady because he played God or Moses or whatever. You know, we had a big meeting, and I was supposed <laughs> to push it, but I couldn't. I mean, I was like, he goes, it's just not my cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever think that part of your charm on SNL and part of the reason why you connected so quickly with the audience was because you had that gee whiz, I can't believe I'm here energy in you i mean you can see in that scene with william shatner that you did your eyes are just popping like crazy like you just can't believe that you're doing it i don't know i mean i would assume that everyone would have that that was a complete unknown but 
back in those days, it was just, there was a, we were kind of the last small cast and, uh, the show was hated at that point. Um, <laughs> so we were trying to dig it back up and, you know, it was just me and John and Phil were kind of the primary players. And, um, it was out of body kind of surreal because it's not really a joke. I mean, I was flailing along and I, I had played a pizza parlor in Martinez, California in July, um, you know, to like four people, you know, but then the audition thing came around and I got the show and I'd never done sketch comedy. My mindset was a stand up mindset rather than a theatrical mindset, which was I must kill all the time. You know, it's like, <laughs> so I was a heat sinking missile. My, that was my attitude. Dana, I have to say, I'm really sorry I never got a chance to interview Don Pardo because he lived in this area and, you know, would fly to New York mm-hmm. on the weekends to do his announcing. Um, in mm-hmm. one of the Saturday Night Live books, you tell a pretty uh, funny story about perhaps your first time meeting Don Pardo. Yeah, everything about, for me, when I went into 8H in New York as, a, as an unknown person was um, – just seeing the studio or the entire environment, you know, and of course you'd see pictures of Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase and Belushi and you just a feeling of really not belonging. But one day we were, John Lovitz and I, who I was becoming friends with at that time, but he'd been on one full season. We ran into Don Pardo during a rehearsal and he's like, say his name, Don, introduce him. Come on. <laughs> so then Don Pardo goes, you know, and Dana Carvey. Yeah. And I just got sick to my stomach. I basically, from the minute I got hired to the minute I premiered myself, I had a stomachache. <laughs> I was just, I kind of wanted it to all go away because of the fear of failure. That's a great story. and a great <laughs> impression of uh, John Lovitz there. Well, yeah, I actually, you know, I thought of it a bit a couple weeks ago, and I tried to give it to John because it was Walter Wenchel. I just said nothing that profound. It was just the uh, Bruce Jenner to Caitlyn Jenner transformation as told in the 1930s with a newsreel <laughs> so it was like and news out of hollywood today olympic champion bruce jenner has announced that he would like to become a she and guess what she's god so <laughs> i thought of the bit and i i called up john i go i i uh i have a bit you have to do you know because it's so perfect for you and uh then i did it for him of course he loved it but he goes i'll write my own material <laughs> do you still add new impressions to your repertoire from time to time i mean i think it's it's just homework it's kind of like never was where my head was at i was assigned george bush senior so i had to work hard had to buckle down I, all i had no technique except just listen i kept listening and watching but it took a long time but as far as today a little while ago i was kind of inspired to do michael Caine. So I started playing around with it, and um, I realized the key to Michael Caine is um, is the nasal part. So I was able, I was able to do it with just as you say just now when I saw him in Interstellar. You're going to a place where no one has ever really gone before, and it's going. To, you're going to go through a bloody wormhole because he's got the high thing he does, and then the lower down in here. Now, the funny one is Donald Trump. I'm trying to learn him actively as we speak. <laughs> There's different rhythms. Just like Obama was one that I said, well, I've got to learn. And I had to learn the way he would frame words and the way he'd come off the end. And that, that sort of exaggerated thing. And so I did learn that. I wanted to be current in that way. And now Donald Trump, it's, a, it's kind of the same thing. These people are very stupid. 
to have him negotiate with Putin. Everyone wants that, whether they're on the left or the right. Everyone <laughs> wants Trump in a room with Putin. Quite frankly, your missiles, they're terrible. They're not very good. We have missiles that are huge. I promise you that. So I'm still learning that. I think within a couple of weeks I'll have it. Dana Carvey's show is Friday at 7.30 p.m. at the Fox Tucson Theater. His sons, Dex, and Tom will also perform. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, when attention is focused on the plight of women and children who live with the threat of abuse at home. Locally, there's an organization that helps thousands of Southern Arizonans each year, providing support, assistance, and a safe place to stay. Tony Paniagua has an interview with a woman who is a victim of domestic abuse and with the CEO of the group that helped her to emerge. Ed Mercurio Sacqua and Dolores Villasenor, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Ed, let's begin with you and what the significance of Domestic Violence Awareness Month is for the month of October. Well, it's important to make sure that we have a time of year where we can really highlight this issue. Um, of course, domestic violence isn't a one-month-a-year issue. It happens all year long. But this gives us an opportunity to really bring some additional visibility to it, make sure people are really aware of this issue, because it's something that typically isn't talked about. It's something that we kind of leave to be between other people in their relationship. So this is an opportunity for us to take it out of the shadows a little bit and make it something that we as a community discuss, because it's a community issue. Even if people aren't talking about it all the time. It is happening apparently very frequently. It is. Um, about one in four women will be impacted by domestic violence during their lives. Here in Tucson and Pima County, we get about 12,000 calls to local law enforcement reporting domestic violence each year. And we know that that's the tip of the iceberg. Research suggests that only about one in 10 cases get reported. And even that's typically just the physical abuse, let alone all the emotional, mental, financial abuse that takes place as well. We at Emerge serve about 5,500 people every year here in Tucson and Pima County, get about 6,000 calls to our hotline. So it's a very prevalent issue. Is there a, quote, typical call at Emerge? Um, you know, it, it ranges because some people are calling just to even find out, am I in an abusive situation? Is that what this is? Others are in immediate crisis and need to flee right that moment in order to be safe and kind of everything in between in terms as people kind of explore their situation and figure out what they want to do about it. And sometimes it's friends and family members or coworkers even who are concerned about someone in their lives who want their own support in how they work through this and in turn support their loved one. All right. And Dolores, how about your situation? I know that you got married quite young and you were in that relationship for several years. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Sure. Um, So I met my ex-husband when we were 15, Um, got married at 18, but I was with him until I was 29. So with me, the abuse started early on, but it wasn't physical. It was more mental, emotional. Um, a lot of isolation, a lot of seclusion from my family. Um, the physical abuse didn't actually start happening until we had already been together for about eight years. And then you had children along the way as I well. I did. I have four daughters with him. So um, it wasn't until I was actually pregnant with the third daughter when the physical abuse began. 
And then you stayed in the relationship. At some point, you walked away or you left him, but then you came back? I had left him um, and left town, went to Colorado. I had filed for divorce. I I just at that point, I was in like a life or death situation. It was I needed to leave. Otherwise, I wasn't going to leave alive if I I didn't. Um, So I did. I left town, um, filed for divorce, left everything behind. Just me and my girls took off. But because I had done all of kind of the footwork here in Arizona, I had to come back because I had filed for divorce in the state of Arizona. I had to bring the girls back. At that point in time, he got back in contact with me, even though he wasn't supposed to, but said all the right things and said everything I wanted to hear. You know, I've I've never been without you. I've changed. You know, I'm done. It'll never happen again. And I believed it. I wanted to believe it. So I did go back to him. But it didn't take me long, even after us getting back together, mm-hmm. to know that it nothing had changed. The mentality was still very much the same. Uh, he wasn't as physically abusive, but all of the other characteristics were very much there. And so I decided to leave him for good, yeah, when I was 29 years old. So we had been together for 14 years before I did. And when did you hear about Emerge, and why did you, what gave you the strength to finally make that phone call? The first time I heard about Emerge, it was when it was still the Brewster Center. And it was my parish priest, actually, who gave me the number and told me, give them a call. Like, this is what they specialize in. Of course, I didn't. I hid the number and kept, I don't even know whatever happened to it. Um, the second time that I had heard about Emerge was when I had left my ex-husband the first time. And my mother actually called them to get information on how to get a restraining order against him. And that was the extent of that. Um, It wasn't until I was ready to leave for good. I was talking to my mom and told her, you know, I'm I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I've been putting up with this for too long. I just, I can't. And she pulled out a card and said, here, call them. And I'm like, okay. And she said, "I, I can't be the one to help you. They do this. You call them. And that was the first thing I did. I went into the other room and I called them, told them what my situation was. You know, their first question to me was, are you in an immediate danger? And I wasn't. I was in, I was in good hands. I was with my family. But I made an intake appointment to meet with an advocate, and and that was it. The rest is history. <laughs> and the rest is history. And, uh, Ed, we were talking about this ahead of the interview, uh, both with you and Dolores. Some people ask themselves, why do people stay or why don't people simply walk away? And I know it's not that simple to just answer that question, but briefly, what can you tell us about those situations? Well, as you said, it's it's not simple in part because the person that we usually ask that question of is the person who's having something done to them. And unfortunately, we don't often enough ask the question about why is their partner using these abusive behaviors as opposed to why um, the victim is staying. But the reality is there's some very um, logical, reasonable reasons that people stay, and a lot of it's about fear. There's tremendous fear, of course, of the unknown and what's going to happen, but there's very real fear around physical danger. Um, In fact, most lethalities and serious injury and domestic violence happen when somebody's trying to leave or has left. And so as twisted as it can be, it's actually safer sometimes to stay. And that's um, for that person knows that better than anybody else. But there's also major financial um, constraints. There's feelings of love. There is the fact that maybe this is all they've ever known. It's maybe what they saw growing up in their own home. There's all of these factors that mean that it's just not that simple to leave. And so that's why, you know, of course, we want to refocus the question on, but it shouldn't be happening to them at all. They shouldn't be having to make that decision to pick up and leave with, with um, you know, nothing um, when it's something being done to them. 
And Dolores, you moved on and you are still assisting Emerge. You're very passionate about this topic. What would you like to tell a listener out there? You know, there is support because for me, at least I had to know that there was someone else out there. Um, aside from my family, aside from everybody that was emotionally involved in my situation, I needed to know that I had support just for me. And that has been, like I said, for me, Emerge has been my backbone. They've been what has my support and what's helped me through every issue that I've dealt with, you know, leaving my ex-husband and just moving on from just pointing me in the right direction, just where I needed to go to get help with like from the divorce to housing, to jobs, to and just getting support from my girls. There, There's people out there. There's support out there for you. Okay. And Ed, finally, how could people get involved in the month of October, especially? I know you said this is not a one month deal, but it, typically what can people do? Well, you know, we want people to um, certainly um, volunteer if they have the time. Um, financial support is always necessary because the demand for our services always exceeds our resources. But much broader than that, um, we want people to be a part of the solution. It is a community problem. It's not just a relationship issue between two people. It's not just an eMERGE issue. This is a community issue. And so we want people to be able to publicly, loudly profess that we, Tucson, will not tolerate this behavior in our community and that we will be available to folks when they need help. We will help point them in the right direction, get them access to services. They might not know about eMERGE or the hotline, but um, maybe a friend does and will point them in that direction. Um, we hope that in October they will wear purple, which is the designated color for domestic violence, um, as a way to show solidarity with victims, as a way to get questions asked. Hey, why are you wearing that purple ribbon today? Well, it's because I support um, an end to domestic violence and I won't tolerate it in our community. So those are the kinds of things people can do in their own lives that have nothing to do with any individual agency or effort, but is really just about how do we as a whole community provide support to people who are going through this. Ed Mercurio Sacqua and Dolores Villasenora, I know you'll be wearing purple in October. Oh, yeah. Uh, every day if I can. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, and good luck to you, Dolores. Thank you. Music and books are usually parallel styles of expression, not easily combined. Author Joanna Skibsrud knew that challenges awaited when she decided to use French composer Olivier Messiaen's 1941 composition, Quartet for the End of Time, as the basis for a novel. The original music was written on scraps of paper in 1941, while Messiaen was being held in a German prisoner of war camp. Its debut performance was held in the camp's yard, in the rain, for an assembly of prisoners and guards. Skibsrud embraced the tragic origins of the music, but decided there was another story she wanted to tell. When I looked into the history of Messian's composition, I learned of the extraordinary ambition that he had for his piece, which was really to translate um, not only the sounds of the world around him, birdsong, um, sounds of engines um, on the road outside of the camps, um, but also the Book of Apocalypse. He, wa he was inspired by the Book of uh, Revelation, Book of Apocalypse, and uh, he wanted to translate that into, into, into song. And I wanted to translate the complex 
uh, emotions that I felt listening to Messian's piece and thinking about uh, the set of circumstances and um, the arrangement of ideas and concerns that, um, that are inherent in that piece into a novel. Was it daunting to consider writing about an er- a historical era as complex and, frankly, as well documented mm-hmm. as World War II? Yes, of course. I mean, it was uh, it was overwhelming uh, because, for exactly that reason, there was so much to explore um, and so much to consider in terms of uh, what I was going to include, and then even before that, what I was going to um, to open myself up to. Um, and uh, but it was extremely. Invigorating, I think, uh, um, also to just plunge in and to part of my uh, inspiration too was to to recognize um, how and to explore how every story opens up onto you know countless other stories, and I just wanted to to go with that momentum and to sort of stumble <laughs> through history in that way without um, a, a clear cut plan or idea of where it was going to end up. What kind of a working relationship did you as an author build with Messian, the character that Hmm. you had to create out of necessity? A difficult one, I think. Messian in the the story of the creation for the quartet for the end of time comes into the story. It's sort of embedded. It's a story within a story. Um, and so he does become a character in that sense, and I hope he's a complex one. I hope that readers aren't don't necessarily fall for him um, all at once, um, um, but that they aren't uh, they don't uh, feel alienated from him either. I wanted him to be both sympathetic and problematic, um, and I wanted that character to sort of haunt the rest of the story in which Messian doesn't show up as a, you know, actual character. Um, but um, that sort of complex figure um, who is, you know, has good intentions um, and is caught within difficult circumstances and doesn't necessarily know the right way to act or the right, right way to um, express his uh, ideas and uh, emotions. Um, I wanted uh that to sort of permeate the the novel and uh, come up in various ways and be expressed through various characters. Do you know if Messian revisited the piece after he was liberated? Did he ever perform it later in life? Yes, he did. Um, the The quartet for the end of time was uh, extremely popular um, after uh, during the war. It was performed several times in Paris and then um, you know afterwards as well. And, you know, to a certain extent, from what I've gathered, it was, even at the time during the war, it was celebrated for the the context in which it was written as well. And now Joanna Skibsrud reads an excerpt from Quartet for the End of Time. The debut of the composer's quartet was set for St. Nicholas's Day, and as it drew near, he worked even more furiously to prepare. He hardly ate anymore or slept. Olivier, you must eat, warned Pasquier, otherwise you will faint away on stage before we finish the first movement. No, no, said the composer, I feel stronger than ever, but everyone could see that he did not. I must confess, he told me one night, as we stood watch together, I can no longer bring myself to eat. You see, when I do manage to fall asleep these days, my hunger results in the most incredible dreams. 
They are more like visions than dreams, and I can't help but look forward to them. I like to pretend I am being visited by angels. Le Boulard's nightmares, on the other hand, over the weeks the musicians worked, almost as feverishly as the composer himself to prepare for the debut, became less frequent. By the middle of December, they had almost ceased entirely. I believe it is the music, he said one morning after a night he had slept through. It is doing me wonders. But does it ever trouble you, asked the clarinetist who had overheard, what they say? And what do they say, asked Le Boulard. You know what, the clarinetist said, but the look on Le Boulard's face clearly indicated he did not. That we are allowed, the clarinetist said, these privileges, our music, the composer's lectures, entertainment every Saturday night, because it looks good for the Germans in Paris that way. Does it ever occur to you, he asked, his voice deepening, that in this sense we are actually working for the Germans? Music has no part in questions of war, snapped the composer who had his head buried in his notebook and until that moment had not appeared to be listening. It cannot be used against anyone, he said. In music, we praise God and nothing, he paused, nobody, he said, emphasizing the word, else. We have been over this a thousand times, the clarinetist said. God is an instrument of the state, and now, he shrugged, so are we. Don't say that, the composer said, snapping his notebook closed and turning to stare at the clarinetist. Not saying it won't change it if it's true. If it is true, put in Le Boulard. But we cannot be certain that it is. The Germans like the performances just as much as we do. I would say that word does not get to Paris very often, if at all. Who would want to report that German officers are enjoying the entertainment of their prisoners because they themselves cannot carry a tune? At last, it was the night of the performance. The musicians assembled themselves with their instruments on stage while the prisoners, fighting for position at the door, waited for the German officers to arrive, after which point they would be free to crowd in behind. There was almost twice the regular turnout that night, and when at last the men burst into the room, there was hardly any room left even to stand. Pasquier and Le Boulard tuned their instruments, Henri blew through his clarinet, and the composer, standing at the head of the stage, quietly surveyed the scene. It was indeed, he saw, his eyes scanning the crowd, his most international audience yet. What you are about to hear, he said, after the musicians had laid down their instruments, indicating they were ready to begin, is an apocalypse, in the true sense of the word, a revelation, a music without time, but performed within time, because, for now, his voice trembled with emotion. He had waited for this moment, after all, for so long. For now, he said again, his eyes for a brief moment coming to rest on Brule, seated in the front row. It is all we have. Joanna Skibsrud read from her novel Quartet for the End of Time, sound designed by Mitchell Riley using the original composition by Olivier Messiaen. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. Spotlight will return in two weeks, on Friday, October 2nd. Next week, AZPM News presents Divided by Law, a half-hour radio special produced by Fernanda Echavarri, telling the story of a family in Tucson, including four siblings who are U.S. citizens, and how their lives were changed by immigration law. 
This program originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.